0: Good morning everyone, if you'll turn in your copy of God's Word with me to Nehemiah chapter 4, this morning we'll conclude that chapter together, Nehemiah chapter 4, and we'll be in verse 15 and running through, as I said, the rest of the chapter. I'll read that over us now. Remember that these are the words of the Lord. Now it happened that when our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had thwarted their counsel, then all of us returned to the wall, each one to his work. And it happened that from that day on, half of my young men carried on the work, while half of them took hold of the spears, the shields, the bows, and the breastplates, and the commanders were behind the whole house of Judah. Those who were rebuilding the wall and those who carried burdens took their load with one hand doing the work and the other holding a weapon. As for the builders, each wore his sword girded at his side as he built, while the trumpeter stood near me. I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is great and extensive, and we are separated on the wall far from one another. At whatever place you hear the sound of the trumpet there gathered together to us, our God will fight for us. So we kept doing the work, with half of them holding the spears from dawn until the stars came out. At that time I also said to the people, Let each man with his young man spend the night within Jerusalem, so that they may be a guard for us by night and a worker by day. So neither I, my brothers, my young men, nor the men of the guard who followed me, none of us removed our clothes." Each took his weapon even to the water. And thus far is the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. God. You may be seated. Let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time. (coughs) Father, as we come to you each week, we ask for food from your word. We know that this is something that only you can give. It is not in me as a man or someone that is called a preacher to be able to give food to your people. That is only by the power and work of your Holy Spirit. But you use men, and so I ask that you would use these words this morning to feed your sheep, and that we would leave encouraged, emboldened, and ready to not only build the kingdom, but if necessary, fight to defend it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, on September the 2nd, 1901, then Vice President Theodore Roosevelt gave a somewhat well known speech at the Minnesota State Fair. Roosevelt was just 42 years old, and in less than two weeks, unbeknownst to him, he would be sworn in as the youngest president in United States history. This following the assassination of, at that time, the current office holder, William McKinley. The contents of the speech aren't really worth our time or examination this morning. They're largely devoid of any biblical wisdom, and uh, Roosevelt leaned heavily uh, towards globalism and a nanny state. But the one part of the speech that probably would ring a bell for many of us is the speak softly and carry a big stick part. Yes, this is that speech, This is when that phrase became much more widely circulated. I'll share just a brief excerpt of the context of those words when Roosevelt gave that speech. He said, right here, let me make as vigorous a plea as I know how in favor of saying nothing that we do not mean and of acting without hesitation with whatever we say. A good many of you are probably acquainted with the old proverb, speak softly and carry a big stick, you will go far. If a man continually blusters, if he lacks civility, a big stick won't save him from trouble. And neither will speaking softly avail, if behind the softness there does not lie strength and power. Let us make it evident that we use no words which we are not, uh, with which we are not prepared to back up with deeds and that while our speech is always moderate, we are ready and willing to make it good. Such an attitude, Roosevelt concludes, will be the surest possible guarantee of that self-respecting peace the attainment of which is and must ever be the prime aim of a self-governing people. Well, over the last several weeks, we've looked at Nehemiah's response to trials, largely focused on the need for God to act on his people's behalf. This, of course, does not negate that we, as Christian citizens in the kingdom of Jesus have things to do as well. Last week, we saw Nehemiah use the formula, ora et labora, pray, and then work your heart out. And the Christian is called to work his or her heart out, not only building the kingdom of Jesus, but if need be, in defense of it. And so Jesus gave his church a big stick, and also left us with the wisdom and, by the power of the Spirit, the fortitudinalism to use it. So, before we get into the text this morning, I want to answer probably one of the bigger questions when we think about the church and its power. The church and its power. What is the big stick? Before we delve too deeply into Nehemiah four let me say something at the outset. You look at this passage as a whole and you can easily see that Nehemiah and his people both had weapons and knew how to use them. A cursory reading of these verses sounds like the inventory of a military weapons barracks. You've got spears and shields and bows and breastplates and swords. The Jews... In Nehemiah's day, those surrounded on all sides by their enemies were well-stocked. They had the leadership to help them, the commanders behind the whole house of Judah. You see that in verse 16. They had an open carry policy. Nobody went to the water fountain even without carrying their sword on their side. That's in verse 23. They had trumpeters to rally the troops together and fight for the kingdom. Some stayed up all night on the night watch. And even though they were building a massive wall in the middle of an arid desert land where it was probably pretty warm, nobody removed their clothes. They kept them on all the time and weren't worried about changing them. It would be a misstep at this point if I didn't mention what a blessing it is to have physical security and physical safety. And in our context, I'm thinking largely of our security team at Christ the King. Many of you know that there are men involved in this group and that they serve gladly without the desire to be noticed. They meet regularly to talk through situations and how to deal with a potential altercation. They train with their weapon systems and are denied the opportunity to serve if they cannot meet a certain standard of proficiency. And none of them Are paid for this role and none of them would want to be paid for it. I'm genuinely grateful for those that serve in this area. We are all much safer because of their care for us in this area. I'm also grateful that the most significant threat to our church safety on any given Sunday morning is not fire that comes from outside the church but perhaps fire that might come from inside the church. Um, There's a lot of guns coming in on hips this morning. Um, We got to watch out for accidental friendly fire here. It's a lot of you men concealed carrying. There's all you ladies with your micro compact around your ankle and all you boys with pockets full of knives. If there is an intruder, let me just say, this is kind of like a broad overview statement, let's let the security guys handle it. Okay, everybody else just get down. If there's a need, we'll find out about it and. People can go to their assistance. It matters, beloved, that we protect our own. And you can certainly look at a passage like this and maybe feel a little bit of zeal rising in your heart. Yes, I want to go to the defense. I want to be able to protect the family of God. I want to to be a part of, of this security team, or I want to think about how I can protect my family. Training is helpful, Stopping threats is something that's important to us here. But our new covenant obligations in fighting for the kingdom of Christ, however, you know, go beyond a physical kind of defense. It's not negating a physical defense, but it does go beyond that. It goes not in contradiction to it, but certainly in magnitude. The assault that we might need to bring is of a potentially greater kind than even thinking in the physical realm. Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not wage war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for tearing down of strongholds. As we tear down speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And, as Roosevelt said, we're ready to punish any disobedience. This is not a physical warfare. This is to take nothing away from what I just mentioned here at Christ the King and our security team. But the enemy of our souls, the enemy of our souls and his pack of ravenous wolves doesn't consider attacking The kingdom of Christ, like Sanballat and his friends, threatened Nehemiah's Jerusalem. His tactics are often far more subtle. Our big stick with which we let the enemy know that we have been given a kingdom and we intend to protect it is not the Armalite rifle. It's not the handgun or the switchblade or the howitzer or an M1 Abrams. These have their place in either the home, the church, or the state. But if we're going to defend, excuse me, the breaches in the wall of the kingdom of Christ here in Anderson County, what weapons did God leave us? What is our big stick? The two that I'm sure immediately come to your mind are prayer and the word of God. The chief weapon in the list of the armor of God is the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Many people say it's the only weapon. However, if you read the verse right after this one, Paul goes on to instruct the Ephesian church, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. You know that these two go hand in hand, the reading of the word of God, our understanding and utilization of the word of God in defense of his church, and also prayers on behalf of of the church. Now I'm not going to spend a lot of time on those two this morning. We've spoken at length about those over the last several weeks. I want to draw your attention to another powerful weapon in the church of Jesus, one which is divinely powerful to, in fact, tear down strongholds and speculations and every lofty thing raised against the knowledge of God. And that, beloved, is the authority of the church of Jesus Christ. I'll say that again. The authority of the church of Jesus Christ has been left to us by our Savior Jesus Christ as a big stick to be used when necessary. This was, in fact, the issue that Paul was dealing with in the Corinthian church. Things were out of order. There were individuals and groups trying to divide the church and discredit Paul's ministry. And underneath all of that, in the spiritual realm, the strongholds and speculations of the enemy were being built brick by brick right next to the walls of the church. You might even say some were being built through intruders and insiders inside the walls of the church of Jesus Christ. But with the right use of church authority, Paul and the Corinthian elders had the power to throw down and destroy these siege works in the spiritual realm to demolish them. And this is what I want to get to by opening up this sermon this morning with this brief theology of weaponry. People want to come to Christ the King because they want a church that preaches the Bible from one cover to the next. But what the Bible speaks, I should say the Lord Jesus actually speaks himself from his own mouth in the Gospels, what the Bible speaks that church elders and even the congregation as a whole have been given the authority to bind and loose in the kingdom of Jesus things going on here on earth. Well, for most people, that's a step too far. They're looking for the true church, but they don't want a church with walls and certainly nobody can carry weapons. But the church does have walls and the church does carry weapons. Jesus' kingdom has both walls and weapons, just like Nehemiah's. Paul speaks of the weapons in Ephesians 6 and 2 Corinthians 10. I've already mentioned those. Several weeks ago, I mentioned the sheep pen in John chapter 10. Remember those that climb over the wall by another way rather than going through the door, Jesus Christ, they are the thieves and the robbers, and they must be put out of the sheep pen. So many Christians, and I mean truly born-again believers, people who have repented of their sins and they know Christ is Lord, have unfortunately been indoctrinated by the current globalist mindset in which everyone must live without any borders and nobody should be able to defend themselves. Because don't worry, the state's going to do that for you. Well, Christ the King refuses to operate under these parameters. In the spiritual realm, the Bible prescribes both walls and weapons for the church. And the most neglected today is the right use of church authority. Whatever I say next is potentially going to make you all more uncomfortable than what I said about the marriage bed last week. You start talking about authority and people are like, Now, wait a second. I want to hear what he's about to say, because ain't nobody going to tell me what to do. What do I mean by church authority? Well, for one thing, we're talking about the process of church discipline. You, as covenant members of Christ the King, have the authority of the church of Jesus Christ when you see a fellow sheep in sin to go with the word of God and confront them with their sin. Now, we don't go with vagaries, we don't go with feelings or that may be going on. We go with book, chapter, verse, and the clear and explicit teaching of the Scripture. I saw anger. I saw bitterness. I saw gossiping. We go with the Word of God, and we address that sheep. This is the beginning stages of the use of the authority of the church to protect the church. Of Jesus Christ from wolves and to bring those sheep who are wandering back into the fold. Now you know that if they don't listen to that first stage then there to be others involved, perhaps others that are associated with the situation or if need be to bring the elders into it so that we can all weigh from the word of God what's going on and if the sheep is truly in sin and if they are not repentant then there's the final stage and that is when the sin And the sinner is brought before the church. And the church is to make a final appeal as a congregation. You must turn in repentance from your sin. Or else we must put you out of this congregation. And that's when the church, when necessary, will have to get the keys out and bind. And say, no, you're not a part of our fellowship anymore. And then call them to repentance and call them back to faith in Christ. So that they can be obedient to the Lord Jesus. Well, church discipline is certainly a part of the process of church authority. But for another thing, we're talking about the authority of the elders of the church to lead, instruct, admonish, rebuke, and, when necessary, warn the church against dangers inside and outside. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. If you consider these things rightly, the authority of the church to carry out the process of discipline, the authority of the elders over the sheep, if we actually weigh these things the way the Bible presents them to us, it should be like that moment when this young boy pulls open a drawer in the house and sees there in that drawer a loaded gun. That's the trepidation that we ought to feel. What we have been given by Jesus, the big stick in order to defend the kingdom of Jesus, is a real serious weapon. It is. There's no mistaking it. It is a real powerful weapon that is to be used for the good of Christ's people. Someone might say, well, Chris, with that much power... Couldn't a church exercise too much authority over people? What if the church got taken over by wolves and they excommunicated all the righteous people? That's historically speaking what happened in the church of Corinth even after Paul wrote these letters. There's evidence that several years after this the church banded together and then excommunicated all of the elders of that church. They kicked the Corinthian elders out. And they had to be written to and made appeals to that you guys are in sin. You, you need to bring back your elders. This is wrong. What if the elders use their authority to control people? What if people start, start calling our church a cult? <laughs> Too late. <laughs> Lord Acton said, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts Absolutely. You've heard that before. But have you considered the alternative? Why with that much danger, why with that kind of drawer being open and that kind of loaded weapon in the hands of sinful men, would Jesus still say, no, my church is to operate under authority? Consider the alternative. There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And this, beloved, led to the only gang rape, which, by the way, ended in murder, recorded in Scripture. Things went from bad in the days of the judges to much, much worse. You want to know what's worse than that? The fact that if we, as the Church of Jesus Christ, choose to lay down our arms, we say, you know what, I don't want to walk around with the big stick. I'm afraid what people will think of me. I mean, that just... That's not a good witness to the community, you know, that we have to use this authority. If we as elders drop the big stick and let the wolves come in, or the congregation says, I'm, I don't have enough courage to address that member about their sin. I'm afraid that I might potentially begin the process of church discipline. What's worse than what happened in the days of the judges is that we, beloved, who have the light of Christ in us, will knowingly be defying the authority of King Jesus, who gave his authority to the church. will be a knowing defiance of the Lord Jesus. There comes a moment when any of us three elders, for example, might get wind of something going on in the church. Now our immediate reaction as your pastors is carefulness with the sheep. We know that we carry a big stick and God will use it on us if we misuse it on you. Shepherding comes loaded with all kinds of risks. Jared Sparks says, pastoral authority is not and should never turn into pastoral control. There's a big difference between those two. But if the elders of your church see the sheep, even the sheep unknowingly starting to head out of the sheep pen and head towards the woods for whatever reason, and we don't warn them, we answer to King Jesus. And I'm not picturing a Jesus here with a lamb in his lap and a small child looking up at him with those big eyes. If the enemy advances his pack of wolves at this congregation through an ideology or false teaching, and we as a congregation don't speak boldly from the word of God to refute the errors making their way in, And it gets inside this pen, and it wreaks havoc here, and tears down much of the work that God has accomplished so far through us. We, church, answer to King Jesus. That's why we warn the sheep, even at the risk that they misunderstand and turn on us, thinking us too aggressive or heavy-handed. Because to reject authority is to reject the kingship of Jesus. He established all authority in heaven and on earth and He is the one to whom all authority in heaven and earth has now been given. Some of you here might need to start by acknowledging that Jesus does have all of that authority. Perhaps there is someone here who is convicted right now that they have never once really submitted To authority with joy, parents, the church, an employer, the government—you lost one faint obedience in your heart to get what you want, but you hate the idea of submission. I can tell you that if that's the case, based on the Word of God, if you hate submission where God has called you to submit, you also hate God. Because God designed the whole universe to be in subjection to him and his delegated authorities. But the good news is that he sent his son into the world to save those who were in open rebellion against him. This is what Jesus died for. Our rebellion, high-handed abdication of our responsibilities before a holy God. God is going to get his lost sheep who are currently today in rebellion to him, even if he has to throw you off a horse on your way to kill or imprison some other sheep. But stop resisting him now, lost one. Repent and bow the knee to King Jesus. He receives everyone who does. Perhaps some of you here today need to make use of the authority of the church by going to a brother or sister and addressing them about this or that sin that you have seen, and at this point you've been afraid of what they might think of you or what others might think of you, and so you've not. As a member of the Church of Jesus Christ, standing on the authority of the Word of God, you are called by God to be the first line of defense when you see error in Jesus' church. Don't go with your gut feeling, don't come out strong with some ambiguities I think this or that. Name the sin. Give them an opportunity to respond. Reason frankly with your brother, the Bible tells us. It's time for both elders and the whole church to use the authority delegated to us to fight, as Nehemiah said earlier in chapter 4, for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses in defense of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Well, let's look more In depth into our passage at this point. Would you do that with me? To this point in chapter 4, we have seen the nations raging, that's from verse 1, and the peoples of those nations plotting against the children of God in verses 7 and 8. And as you can see from this morning's text and in God's good design, keeping with the outline of Psalm 2, all of their opposition to this point has been in vain. The cold war of propaganda that Sanballat and his friends have waged turned out to be a big waste of time. God made Nehemiah and the J-team aware of the plots of their enemies and then they pivoted, effectively thwarting the ambush. You see that in verse 15 we opened with this morning. Now before I go any further, just a quick side point. Church, if you will take action... "...against the devil and his propaganda machine, his slander efforts against you will always amount to a cold war. Always. No bullets, only a muster of bluster." Martin Luther said, "...the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His word we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word, one little word of defiance... From the word of God, just like the three words that Jesus gave him in the teeth when he was tested in the wilderness, one little word will fell him. But, beloved, you have got to get up and fight. You have got to stop listening to the slander. You have got to kill the dragon. Wipe a sullen feeling off of your heart and get up and fight. So often in a discipline situation, I'll have a child who's got that sullen face and attitude. And one of my encouragements after the discipline is stop listening to the slanderer. Wipe that off your face. Jesus is king. He rules this house, and he's a good, good God. And he's going to take good care of our family. So there's no reason for a frown. Wipe it off your face. And parents, our children do this so often because they see it in us. We've got to deny the slanderer any court. Let his propaganda turn into a cold war and he'll move on. The Bible says you resist the devil long enough and he will flee from you. Well, lest Nehemiah expose himself to the fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me adage. He doesn't take the provocation of his enemies sitting down. He's not afraid to use his authority. Now, he's already said in verse 15... That they saw that the enemies were aware now, oh our plan's been found out and they gave up and Nehemiah goes back to work. But here's what's interesting. He immediately takes the security of the city up a notch by getting everyone ready to fight while at the same time they're trying to build this wall. First, a group of young men, that's the LSB's rendering. If you're reading an ESV, it would say something like servants. He mentions this group of young men, or likely men who worked closely with him in governing affairs, people that were subordinates underneath him. Now, he splits that group into two teams. One group is going to work, and the other group is going to hold the military gear. Those who stood by the armory were holding what could not be held, While you were building. You can have a sword strapped to your waist. You see that in verse 18. And work at the same time. But the spear and the bow are a bit cumbersome to hold while you're trying to lay bricks. Nevertheless, Nehemiah knows that all of these tools may be needed if full combat is joined. He doesn't neglect this layer of protection because it's going to make the building cumbersome. Or I think the enemy's gone away for now, so let's just put the... The weapons back in the storehouse. And that way we can work with both hands and not have anything hanging off. We can actually get this job done faster. In addition, he set up commanders all around the city. You see that they were behind the house of Judah. And they were making sure that Nehemiah's orders were being carried out. While he was at other parts of the project. There are men carrying burdens. And they had a weapon in hand. At every single moment. Now, this is the one that if you stop and think about it, it might be the most puzzling. You've got a guy who's carrying a burden. Maybe he's got a brick or a basket with some mortar or some tools on him. But he has to carry a weapon around in his hand all the time while he's carrying this burden. Why? That seems so restrictive. That seems so cumbersome. But if you think about this principle, mobility, in this hostile environment, also equals vulnerability, okay? Military guys know this. When you're moving around, that's when you're most vulnerable. So you need to be on the ready. You need to be careful. You need to be prepared. Their readiness, having carried a weapon in one hand while they were carrying their burden, slowed their ability to work, but it was necessary for the protection of the workers. I mentioned earlier in verse 18 that the men who were working had a sword on their hip at all times, everyone had to be ready at the blast of the trumpet to rally to wherever Nehemiah and the trumpeter was, if you think about it overall, this is a pretty keen strategy. I mean, it's not ideal to have to build and fight at the same time, having as it were the sword in one hand and the trowel in the other, but Nehemiah shows us that he is not just a decisive leader and a great project manager but that he is willing to do whatever it takes to protect the people of God. That is, in fact, who we're building this city to protect, the people of God. So why would we have a city that we built and not have weapons to defend it? It doesn't make any sense. The foolishness of our day is churches don't need borders and they don't need weapons. None of that makes any sense with Scripture. Now, there are two points at this point in the text that I want you to consider briefly. First, you can't do it all, beloved. You can't do it all. Everyone in the congregation had to be ready to help in some way, but nobody was able to help in every single way. You can't swing a hammer when you have both hands on a longbow. You can't spread mortar and lay a brick when there's a tower shield around your wrist. No Christian is designed to do it all, it is impossible to act like you alone are responsible to build the kingdom of God and also fight in every one of Jesus' battles. And you know the people who usually do this are the ones who think they've got the scripture figured out. Nobody at this church knows what the Bible really says. If I would just get a teaching platform, if somebody would just listen to me, can I get a group together, let's do a Bible study, I'll tell you what the Bible really says. And it's that kind of hubris that ends up getting churches into A lot of trouble. But beloved, for our sakes here, know that you can't raise a family and participate in evangelism and be at every elder training and accept every fellowship opportunity and devote two hours a day to prayer and cook for the hospitality ministry and foster children and grow a business and be a deacon and run the nursery and be on the city council so on and so forth. You get the idea. The problem is we've been taught for years and years and years in the American church, those sort of pietistic movements have told us that in order to be faithful to Jesus, you've got to sell your soul for the church. You've got to do it all, which usually ends up with a father selling his marriage for the latest program that the family is required to attend. Our pastor said we had to be there. Or a mother giving up her duties at home because there's another women's ministry gathering that she can't miss. It's my only time to get together with the ladies. Or both parents abdicating their children's discipleship to a kid barely out of his teens and is not elder qualified and never led family worship in his life. But it's okay. He's been to Bible school. I understand that our church isn't like this, but some might consider their zeal for the truth and how that incentivized them to involve themselves in every Christian controversy going on right now in the kingdom of Christ. Your ideas that you get from these podcasts and this blog article and that website, what do they put into your head? And what are you bringing back to the church? What you're going through? And and how often are you picking up your phone to discuss with other brothers or sisters in the church this controversy or that controversy? And your nine-year-old's been asking you for two weeks in a row just to come downstairs and play some ping pong. Brothers, sisters, we should hate the thought of thinking that we can do it all. And we need to repent of doing a lot of things mediocre. And we need to give ourselves to doing a few things very, very well. You may be called to build and you wish you could fight. You might even have the slander come at you and say, you see, you don't fight because you're a coward. But God's called you to build. You have a different temperament. There's no cowardice. But you have one task, and somebody else has another. Stop feeling guilty about what God has not called you to do. You may be tempted to look with envy on your neighbor's work. He has the real important task. He's working in the city. She's counseling the sisters. He's organizing events for the men. She decorates for all the get-togethers. He gets asked to preach. I have a house full of kids that don't listen to me and a spouse that doesn't like me and as spring comes on, and the garden needs tending, you, brother, or you, sister, go pick up the fertilizer to put on the root of bitterness in your heart. Repent. He who is faithful with a little is gonna be put over much. Jesus told us that. Get your small agency, your delegated authority in your sphere of sovereignty, In order and trust God to send you the season, what you need to be doing for the kingdom. And let the rest go. Second thing that I want you to notice is that the whole congregation rallied to the point of crisis. Nehemiah stood next to the trumpeter, and if anyone was under attack, the whole congregation came to their aid. Here again, you see the big stick, the authority of the church. And this is the point of testing as to whether or not we actually love the power and authority of the church of Jesus Christ. Imagine for a minute that one of the families working on the wall noticed in the distance some Ashdodites approaching from the west. Let's say that a child grabs his dad's robe and just points in that direction. Daddy, do you see that? But dad looks at his son... It's ludicrous for me to even say this. Dad looks at his son and says, Son, we can't bother the other workers right now. They all have their burdens and their weapons to worry with. Everyone is so busy that if if we call them right now, they think that we can't handle this. Son, it's time for us to be brave. It's time for us to act like men. We can take care of this ourselves. That's not bravery, that's stupidity. That's hubris, that's arrogance, that's nothing but self-serving pride. And there's some of you who would never call out or accept assistance from the church for any reason. Because of your pride and your fear of what men might think of you, if you were in a tight spot, you would never allow the deacons to pay your mortgage or utilities. You would never reach out to the sisters to ask for help with childcare or a meal. You would never ask for and keep pursuing counseling for your marriage, even though your spouse would be blessed and your home would grow and your children would likely thrive. You are comfortable acting like the man working on the wall who, when he sees the enemy army approaching, he turns to the trumpeter and says, Don't you dare blow that horn. I don't need anybody's help. It's kind of a Marvel superhero Hulk syndrome, if you'll allow me. I'm man enough to deal with whatever God can throw at me. All the forces of darkness are pouring through the breach in the wall around my home, and my solution is to get angry and go rage monster, and somehow all my enemies will be defeated in the end. For those of you who have actually seen some of the Avengers movies, there's a lot of collateral damage when Hulk gets angry your family and your home are likely to take the brunt of your frustration and the enemy comes in and ends up tearing down a lot of the work that you've been building towards growing a heritage and a future. Brother or sister, if this is you, you are in grave sin because of your pride. You're in opposition to God because of your fear of man. Your wife or your husband is trying to build and wants to help and is crying out for help. And you've told them, as we did, saw in the text last week, 10 times stop complaining, we'll figure this out on our own. Now, there is no soft way for me to say this to you, but how dare you? You have got to die to your sinful pride and fear and stop pretending that you have it all together. Especially, brothers, when you hang out with the men here. Quit shifting your story from person to person and come out with it that your section of the wall is under fire and you need help. He who confesses his sin will not prosper, or excuse me, he who conceals his sin will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes it will find mercy. Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you in due time, casting all of your anxieties on him because... He cares for you. 1 Peter 5, 6. Do you know, brother, who is in opposition to you and all of these things? Who is by his omnipotent power and sovereignty sending wave after wave of challenges in order that you might die to your pride? It's the Lord God Almighty. Like the Apostle Paul, then Saul, you are kicking against the goads of Christ. You are at war with God. Stop. Repent. Right after this service, go to a trusted brother and ask for help. Let the trumpeter do his job. Let the church rally to your aid and get the breach in the wall repaired, and then you can help us advance the kingdom. We need you. Allow us to come to your aid. Well, with the last few minutes, I want to look at the remaining three verses of chapter 4. Notice... Chapter 21, how Nehemiah emphasizes, in these last three verses, excuse me, in verse 21, how Nehemiah emphasizes the workers' priorities. These men all worked with all of their daylight hours. They didn't waste any time. They stayed in close proximity to the work in order to maximize their efforts. That's verse 22. And in verse 23, they would go without some conveniences for the sake of getting the work done. There were some dirty clothes and weapons at water fountains. Now you could summarize verses 21 to 23 as the people of God prioritizing the building of the kingdom. Jesus taught us to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all of our other needs would be provided for us. Now, here's where somebody might get some whiplash if I'm not careful. I just said that you can't do it all, but now I'm going to encourage you to give your all For the cause. This is where our commitment at Christ the King to a local focus solves the problems created by an ecclesiological hive mind of globalism. We avoid doing it all by doing a few things well and by doing them here, where God has planted our finite bodies. I grew up in Knoxville, I lived there all my young life. Once an Knoxville boy, always an Knoxville boy. Not anymore. Not anymore. I'm a Clinton man now. And I intend it to be that way for the rest of my life. I'm going to live local. And I'm going to build here so that I have something long-lasting for my family and to show Jesus on the last day. But Chris, God can do whatever he wants. You can't tell God what you're going to do. That's what James warns us against. I can assure you, brothers and sisters, that I know that to be the case. You cannot tell the Lord God what you're going to do. But you have got to plan for and aim at something. You have got to start building or fighting in a way that lays bricks in God's kingdom or puts a dent in the enemies. I mentioned last week that the Calvinist prayers are largely so ineffective because he qualifies his prayers to death, but, but Lord, only if you will. And what that ends up doing is leading to a mindset where I don't really believe that God's going to do anything for me. Or, maybe worse, to the point where you believe that God doesn't want to do anything for you. You're such a sinner, you're so off base, God will never listen to your prayers because you don't even know what God wants. I don't know what you want, Lord, so just whatever you will. And I never say, please, I need this. Jesus never taught us to pray that way he said ask seek and knock we talked about this last week when the elders at Christ the King talk about localism we regularly get a little bit of a vibe from visitors how could you be so focused on Anderson County don't you know how many lost people there are in the surrounding counties don't you know that they're still murdering children across the state line in Bristol Virginia Don't you care about the lost souls of those who've never had a chance to hear the name of Jesus in other countries? Localism sounds pretty self-centered to me. Jesus taught us to love our neighbor. Now with a smirk on my face, if somebody was actually brave enough to verbalize that, I would respond by saying, repeat what you just said, but say it really slowly. Last week, I spoke about the finitude of man. Christ has given us a global mission to fill a massive world with his gospel, and he gave that mission to a limited and very small type of creation, us. Know your place in the story, beloved. Christ is omnipresent, and yet we occupy a very small space in his story. However, as we take dominion of what is right in front of us, which may be some yard work, or your business, or the homeschooling of the kids, or the budget, or that gossipy spirit you just can't get a hold of, and as we obey God in being fruitful and multiplying, allowing Him to have control over the productivity of the womb, and as we give ourselves to the planting of a new work here, and fertilizing its growth, No matter how slow that work seems to be, he will bless us with a heritage that will one day fill the whole earth with his glory. We've got big goals here at Christ the King. Our church will see Clinton belong to Jesus Christ. Our church is going to see that. We will see the overturning of the library board and even the county commission to those who will serve on them. And at the same time, bow the knee to King Jesus. We will see children educated in the fear and admonition of the Lord. We will see high quality medical care provided by doctors and nurses who know what a boy and a girl is. And they don't have to go down to the Nashville State Building to ask permission to buy an MRI machine. From Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7. At the end of days... The reign, the dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole earth will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all the dominions will serve and obey him. That's why Clinton's going to be underneath the feet of Jesus. And we can say we believe that we will see that. What I just read to you can't not happen. It must take place. When Jesus returns, he will return to a kingdom, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. He deserves to return to a kingdom. And we ought to be diligent about the work that is here. The men in these last three verses sometimes stayed up late. Sometimes they didn't change their clothes. think you should change them Occasionally. They slept on the job site because they wanted to maximize their efforts and they wanted to get a return as soon as possible because they had a kingdom to build. The question, beloved, do you? Are you a part of the building of the kingdom of Jesus? So if you answer yes to that question, why neglect the use of the weapons that God has left us for the protection and advancement of his kingdom? As Roosevelt said, we do carry a big stick. Paul warned the Corinthians that he was not afraid to come and clean house if necessary. He said in chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians, For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What do you desire? Shall I come to you with a rod? There's a stick. Or with love and a spirit of gentleness. If the enemy of our souls attacks With his forces from outside or inside the church, this whole congregation has been gifted the word of God, prayer, and if necessary, the authority of King Jesus to deal out spankings to those who would threaten to destroy the wall and the city that we are building. The utilization of these tools will mean that our work will be more cumbersome than it could otherwise be. It won't feel as efficient. The optics of pulling out your concealed carry weapon rarely look good these days. It's always spun to look like a terrible thing that someone was carrying a gun. It would be easier if as pastors and you as the church, we just overlooked controversies. People are getting involved in this or that thing. Just brush it under the rug. Mind your own business. Let the sheep do as they please. And tacitly speaking, this is what the evangelical church in America Has been demanding pastors and covenant members do for a very long time. Drop your weapons, open the borders. And church members are allowing it, when instead the trumpet needs to be sounded, but they don't want any help. The church must repent and fear God, who alone can help us finish this mission. Hear the words of Nehemiah in verse 20 of our text this morning. He said, our God will fight for us. The authority of the church isn't the solution to all of the church's problems, brothers and sisters. We need God to fight for us. I mentioned this at the beginning. But you can bet that he won't fight for us when we pander to the expectations and desires of sinful men. Jesus is king, and those who submit to his lordship can count on the fact that he fights for them, when they follow and obey him. Father, we thank you for the word of God and how it ministers to our souls. We ask now, as we prepare to take your meal, that you would help us to remember Christ, that you would help us to remember his desire, which was to have a bride, which was to establish a kingdom in which he and his bride would live forever. And would you give us fervency and zeal for that work, helping us not to be afraid, if necessary, to use what means you have left us to protect and defend your kingdom. O Lord, we need the help of Jesus for this task. Be with us in the coming week and reveal to us the areas where we need to shore up the walls in our own lives. And if necessary, let the trumpet be blown and let help be given that every member of Christ the King would be in a place where they can actively help build the kingdom and their wall is not torn down. We need you for this, Jesus, and so we beseech you for these things. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.